Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle. We know that obesity is higher after cancer treatments, and we know that sugar is one of the strongest reasons why people put on weight. So uh, you know, there's many other reasons. Um, it increases fatigue, which is a big problem after cancer treatments. So you know, if, if you were doing one thing to help yourself with cancer, reducing sugar is definitely one of them. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast. about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor. I study nutrition, and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best On today's podcast, we are talking about everything to do with cancer with Professor Robert Thomas, who is a consultant oncologist at Bedford and Addenbrooke's hospitals. He's also a clinical teacher at Cambridge University and visiting professor of sports and nutritional science at the University of Bedfordshire, which we get into a little bit later. Today's pod is everything to do with cancer. It's perhaps one of the most comprehensive and therefore one of the longest podcasts that I've actually recorded ever. For to avoid confusion, we've separated our conversation to three distinct areas. There's what to eat and lifestyle measures in a preventative manner, a peri-treatment and during management, what to eat and, and lifestyle measures, and then post-cancer, what to eat in terms of reducing the likelihood of recurrence. Now, like I said in my book, Eat to Be Illness, this topic is perhaps the hardest to talk about the hardest to write about because it's such a taboo topic but i think unless we and when i say we i mean the conventional medical professionals entertain conversations and actually look at the evidence base behind them we will always leave a vacuum that is there to be taken up by people who are not evidence-based and usually promotes myths and uh, misinformation that can lead people to harm. This is directed at trying to give people the utensils and the information to better themselves and to give themselves more control and, and genuinely improve outcomes as well and reduce risk. So that's why I continue to talk about these subjects because otherwise it's very unlikely that you're going to get the right information. So 
right off the bat, if you know somebody or you think that this could be useful for anybody, please do share it. And I will continue to try and do more podcasts on the subject if you feel you need that as well. On today's podcast, we literally talk about everything with regard to why Professor is uh, involved in the nutrition conversations and lifestyle. Um, We talk about polyphenols, what they are. We talk about the broader sense of what cancer involves. Um, we, we talk about sugar in particular, which is one of the pet peeves for Professor. And uh, I can understand why, because there is a lot of evidence about processed sugar and why we need to be taking that out quite drastically in our diets. And as somebody who sees patients in and out and the the lack of, um, of effort going into uh, messaging to really remind and educate people on the harms of sugar, uh, I think I understand his viewpoint very much so. But it isn't popular with uh, a lot of people and and uh, he and I understand uh, that that is a bit of a sticking point. We talk about the uh, Warburg effect, exactly what that is. And just to clarify, it's this inappropriate preference of cancer cells for the less efficient respiratory cellular pathways to produce energy, even in the presence of sufficient oxygen. Um, I know that sounds a little bit geeky, but um, if you look it up before the podcast or even read Professor's book, it gives you a much more in-depth uh, in, uh, picture of, of what that that actually is as well as some nice pictures too uh, we talk about the direct and indirect mechanisms of uh, vegetables and polyphenols in particular on on cancer and why that can be extrapolated to have human effects um, and we talk about some really interesting ideas around prehab uh, for patients undergoing cancer therapies and this is looking at uh, vitamin d improving gut health uh, yes uh, changes in diet uh, and also entertaining perhaps some uh, tailored supplementation we, we talk about a lot of things as you can tell uh, we, we even span into some of the work that he's doing with the um, COVID-19 response and and how nutrition may be uh, may be involved in in terms of trying to lessen the impact of the virus again very very preliminary stuff we do talk about some ingredients in particular but as hopefully you'll understand um, it is very early days to even be entertaining that kind of subject and it all comes back to a whole foods largely plant-focused diet with lots of variety and plenty of uh, whole ingredients so uh, watch this space Uh, to end off with we talk about the future of oncology individualized medicine immuno-oncology which is the advent of immunotherapy techniques as well as metabolic oncology and what professor sees as the future uh, of cancer patient journeys i think this is a wonderful uh, pod if you're starting out on nutrition um, and just really trying to tackle one of the most the the most difficult subject I think to talk about uh, and the most heart-wrenching condition as well so with respect I think it's important to to talk about this subject without uh, adding blame or adding even more conflict to the situation so in addition, I would encourage you to check out the podcast page um, because Professor is lead of a lifestyle and cancer research unit that conducts designing and conducting government-backed studies that evaluate the impact of exercise, diet, and natural therapies. And that's in collaboration with the universities that he works with. Um, and he's published over 100 peer-reviewed scientific papers, again, some of which we will link to um, in the show notes on the podcast page. Um, and just as an aside, in, in 2019, 
2019, he wrote a book called Keep Healthy After Cancer, and he remains medical advisor for the Lifestyle Cancer website, cancernet.co.uk. So if you're interested in this or you need more information, I would highly, highly recommend you do check out that website um, and also the general lifestyle site, keep-healthy.com. Uh, Additionally, he's got a long CV. Uh, these, for these contributions, he's been awarded the British Oncology Association's Ecologist of the Year and the Royal College of Radiologists Medal as well. Without further rambling, give us a five-star review if you found this helpful. And this is my podcast with Professor Robert Thomas. Robert, I'm really fascinated as to... Uh, what you're doing now, given the current scenario, and how your clinical work has um, has changed uh, given the pandemic. Good morning, Rupi. Uh, yes, well, I'm a, a mainstream oncologist in uh, two hospitals, one a, a sort of smaller DGH in Bedford, and um, we've been dragged into seeing medical patients on the ward to cover our colleagues because there's a lot of people going off sick, um, and there's a bit more work to do with um, looking after the ill COVID patients. So a little bit of a challenge because I last did, uh, you know, learned how to treat a, a heart attack or a chest infection probably 20 years ago. Um, but fortunately, there's lots of guidelines out there and there's the, the junior doctors these days are you know, brilliant and the nurses are brilliant. So I feel well supported, but they still need someone to make decisions. So that's why they drag consultants up. So uh, different on that point. Um, in the oncology side, a uh, little bit more difficult because the drugs we give can make people immune uh, deficient. Um, so we have to think twice about starting chemotherapy or one of the new immunotherapies, which can lower white cell counts. And it is known that if you catch COVID with neutropenia, then your chance of survival is much less. Mm. So um, you have uh, so decisions with patients take longer. If you're only having, say, a 5% extra benefit from chemotherapy and then you think, well, you know, you could get COVID and be fatal, then the threshold for offering chemotherapy is lower. Um, that said, we're, you know, we're working flat out. We, we, we've still got the same number of people on chemo. Uh, we don't, what we don't want is what many people are doing is, is not giving a treatment which might offer a significant chance of saving their life, say, five years down the line. Mm. Um, because of a say three percent chance of getting an infection now, so you have to uh, think a lot about what you're doing. But um, interesting times. Yeah, it must be quite daunting going back onto the medical wards after that long out of acute medicine, I suppose, right? But like you said, there's um, there's some great um, algorithms, some great guidance, and uh, everyone seems to just be mucking in and helping each other out. I've never seen such a collaborative organisation. Yeah, it is, it is a bit daunting. As you say, it, I was quite um, impressed the level of staffing from when, you know, I was a, an SHO or, or a registrar where you covered a whole hospital. Yeah. I mean, most wards have two or three doctors. I thought it was quite luxury. But uh, and as you said, there's good guidelines. Um, the last time I was on the ward, there were, there were two alcoholic um, patients who were recovering. There, there was two heart attacks. Uh, there was a stroke. Three chest infections. So you're right. I mean, I'm, I spend my days, you know, prescribing chemo and radiotherapy, and don't think about anything else. So, it's, yeah. uh, but as an oncologist, you, one attraction for oncology is is you you do have to look at the whole patient. You have to look at the frame of mind. You have to look at the other comorbidities uh, before 
giving you know, very toxic treatment. So I don't feel completely out of my depth. Maybe the first few hours I was a bit nervous, but uh, I, I sort of found my feet quite quickly, I hope. Yeah, I'm sure. No, I'm sure. Um, and, and with that in mind, I, I'm, I'm really, really excited about um, talking to you. We've met a couple of times. Uh, I think we've been on panels together. Um, we've both presented at some some conferences. Uh, or, um, yeah, I think they're conferences. Well, not, not academic conferences, but um, patient-facing uh, conferences. And you're particularly special in terms of your um, your perspective on looking at the patient holistically because you, you're a real proponent for nutrition. And oncology and nutrition is something that I think has got a bad reputation, but I think people are coming around to the idea of the importance of diet um, uh, during treatment, pre-treatment and post-cancer as well. What I thought would be nice to frame this conversation is perhaps describing exactly what we mean by cancer, because it's a very, very broad term that's banded around, I think, a little bit too liberally, and how much we actually know about uh, the causes of cancer uh, at this point in time. I know it's a huge question to to hit you with at the start of this, but um, perhaps we can kick off there. Well, as you say, I've been interested in trying to get the evidence for the best advice to give patients, because... Uh, particularly with social media and access to the internet, more and more people are sort of searching what they can do to help themselves. And there's, as you know, there's a lot of sort of false news out there, for want of a better word. Um, And there's some good research from around the world, but there's lots of gaps in nutritional research and cancer. I mean, it's not the, it's getting better, but it's not the the most attractive part of research. I mean, the big drug companies want to develop a brand new drug, which are, has a great chance of response and make them money, et cetera. Uh, but, you know, um, research on sort of how much exercise to do, what sort of exercise to do does always take second fiddle, but that's what patients can do to help themselves. So they, it's, it's important to get the information. So we design trials to find out, you know, what's the optimum nutrition, what's the optimum exercise, where they should be in the sun, where they should be taking vitamin D, things like that. And we've been doing that for now 20 years. So we've had some interesting results. And from that, we can guide patients we see personally in our unit. Uh, We can put it out on social media. We can write books. And quite importantly, we advise lots of the main charities like Macmillan, Bowel Cancer UK, what should be in their information leaflets. Um, Because they're keen to get, get as much evidence as possible as well. And so, and so when we when we talk about cancer, why don't we talk why don't we describe what we mean by cancer? What is cancer? Um, well, cancer is an enormous subject. Many people think we shouldn't call cancer one name. It should be fifty yeah. different names. But you know, there's a whole spectrum from a low grade prostate cancer, which has got a one percent chance of affecting that person's lifespan to having a very aggressive say pancreatic cancer where there's a nine month chance of uh, survival and treatments are very scant um, but at the end of the day a cancer cell uh, the, the the genetic uh, damage to cause the cancer is in our cells we're born with the codes for cancer and they're locked in place by other genes called um, suppressor genes which stop those those codes of dna Uh, causing problem but something happens along the line it could be by chance it could be because we've eaten some carcinogenic foods or done something bad and the genetic material gets rearranged 
and the codes for that cell become abnormal. So instead of a normal cell growing to a certain size, stopping growing and dying to allow healthy cells to replace it, a cancer cell carries on growing. It creates a mass because it doesn't die and then it looks for areas to spread. So it will invade other tissues around it and then find ways to spread around the body in order to survive. So it's a bit like an infection, really, a sort of slow infection. It's trying to survive. And in that process of spreading and invading, it causes a lot of damage to normal tissues. And eventually, if that damage is uh, strong enough, the, the, the organ would fail and the patient would get seriously ill. And you mentioned genes there. Um, what proportion are we talking about with regards to cancers uh, where there's a clear sort of deterministic inherited genetic mutation versus the ones that we acquire throughout our lifespan. So I think people are aware that there are things that we can do to, to mitigate against the risk of mutations, whether that be uh, limiting excessive exposure to UVB rays, limiting uh, food, and, and we can talk about sugar in, uh, in, in a specific case. Um, but what's really the balance when, we, when it comes to the genetic risks that we can't really change versus the ones that we can? Well, the WHO and the World Cancer Research Fund have done some quite interesting statistical modelling to say how many cancers are in the world are caused by um, caused by um, just spontaneous mutations. So you can have the life of an angel and still get them, and how many are lifestyle driven? And they've come down to about fifty percent. That's based on the, the the large risk factors such as smoking, sedentary behaviour. Um, obesity. Uh, I think it's a bit higher, to be honest, in my personal experience, because they haven't taken into account things like gut health, mm. levels of polyphenol in the diet. Um, but it comes down to statistical odds. So you can be born with a BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation, which increases your risk of breast cancer and ovarian cancer by about 80%. Um, so, you know, you're born with, as you can, I, I put it to a game of poker, you're born with, with bad cards. However, if you lead a very healthy lifestyle, you can, you know, delay when that cancer starts and maybe you can have a less aggressive form of it. But at the end of the day, you've got a high risk, whatever you do. Um, but there is a double hit theory. If you have those poor genes, the BRCA or similar ones, and you have a poor lifestyle, you're going to get cancer very quickly and it's going to be very aggressive. Um, on the other hand, you can be like all these annoying people you find, you know, in their late 80s who've smoked all their life and done nothing and laughed at everyone saying, look at me. They've been born with very robust genes. And I think we should find out more about what genes they have, to be honest. That's a separate thing. Um, but most of us are somewhere in the middle. So we have a strong influence of whether we're going to get cancer or not. So for the middle ground, which is probably 90% of the population, you do have a strong influence of whether you're going to get cancer. And even if you don't stop it, you're going to put it later in life and it's going to be a less aggressive type. We know that from lots of co uh, cohort studies that people who have a poorer lifestyle tend to have more aggressive cancers. So I, mean, I get this with my patients saying, but doc, I've lived, you know, I'm, I'm really healthy and I've still got cancer. I said, yeah, but you're, you know, 84, you've got a grade one prostate cancer. You know, if you weren't healthy, maybe you would have got a high grade cancer in your 50s. So it's all about changing your odds with lifestyle yeah and, and and on that note i think um 
it would be really useful to uh, frame our conversation to three distinct areas. So we've got preventative, uh, peri-treatment or peri-management, and then post-cancer. And the ability of, uh, of us and our lifestyle uh, and nutrition in particular to alter the the outcomes of all those different in those different uh, arenas so you're particularly interested in um in diet in polyphenols you've done tons of work in that respect what kind of things can we do in terms of our diet and lifestyle to prevent cancers from occurring in the first place and is that enough this is a separate question i know they're, they're quite big questions but is that enough to um substantially mitigate the risk if you do have mutations like BRCA1, BRCA2? Um, well, that's a long question. As, as I know, sorry. <laughs> um, before we start, we should say, you know, there are medical things you can do before we go on to just as a sort of preamble. It goes without saying, you know, if you're a woman, you get your mammograms to pick up tumours early. If you get your HPV vaccination, uh, you, you go for bowel cancer screening if you're a man over 60. So all those things uh, which the medical community are doing to pick up tumours earlier or provide vaccines are obviously very important. Um, so we're not saying don't do that. In terms of uh, lifestyle, as I said, the, the, fortunately, most of the data for preventative, whether you have cancer to reduce the progression or you've had cancer and you want to stop it coming back, most of the data say the lifestyle factors are pretty similar. Mm-hmm. So um, there's, there's, there's not, we can sort of put it all in one lifestyle category. Mm-hmm. Um, many people uh, will come on to, if you have cancer, many people say, well, there's no point reducing carcinogens if you've already had it, but that's not true either. And we can come on to that. So breaking it up into different factors. So you want to avoid bad things. So bad things are, carcinogens now the there's in my book there's a and i'm sure you have it in your books there's you know there's a whole category of carcinogens which we could talk all day but the common ones would be polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons which you get from burnt over overcooked meat which i'm sure you never do Mm. um but if you would get a sort of a bit of bacon you put it in your frying pan you fry it to a crisp it's covered covered in that black stuff which some people love uh, that's your polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. Now that goes into your stomach and is converted to aromatic amines and they're highly carcinogenic, especially for stomach, pancreas, bowel cancer. Uh, the other thing is smoke, smoke food. We, smoke can be harmful um, ingested as well as smoked. Um, and um, then the other category is acrylamines. Acrylamines is, is as you know, is, is uh, sugar or carbohydrates heated to high temperatures. So things like uh, uh, cereals, I don't want to use brand name, but uh, corn cereals, which are heated to a very high temperature, have, have got high levels of uh, uh, acrylamides. And there's, there's many more, you know, then we come on to the pesticides and the herbicides, which have estrogenic effects. Mm-hmm. And this is uh, combined with plastic bottles and, and car fumes. These are your estrogenic carcinogens, and they will increase the risk of breast cancer, ovarian cancer. And at the same time, they will um, reduce men's sperm count, reduce men's libido, 
And, you know, if you go to the Amazon and turn a crocodile upside down, you apparently they've all got small penises now, but uh, I'm, I'm sure that's a myth and nobody's actually done it. But, uh, <laughs> I haven't heard of that one. <laughs> uh, maybe that's your next program. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, uh, but what I'm saying, what is it? It's about estrogenizing the, the world. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the Woody Allen film, I think it was The Sleepers, you know, eventually what will happen is men will, you know, get a low libido, low sperm count, have small penises, and, you know, obviously we will not have a population. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm think, uh, anyway, I'm dra dramatizing it, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's the ultimate. Uh, so, you know, it, it's heading that way. I mean, the amount of bottle, plastic bottles everywhere and there's mm. estrogenic carcinogens everywhere. The only good thing about the COVID is that the car pollution is going down. So, yeah, massively, yeah. And I think you know, not only is the car pollution going down, it's um, it's encouraging people to go out and and walk a lot more and actually interact with their neighbor at a safe distance. And you know, the number of people I've heard anecdotally that have struck up conversations with people that they had no idea lived next to them, um, it's quite amazing. So you know, and there are some anti-cancer benefits of that, I'm sure, as well. Absolutely, Ruby. Um, so those are the main things, avoiding carcinogens. But again, we, we could go on and on about that. Um, and then there's, there's sugar, uh, processed sugar, uh, which we, we can expand on in a minute. Uh, and then um, on the things like sunburning, uh, radiation, having too many x-rays, being next to a, a radiation source, that sort of thing. Uh, cosmic radiation, you know, air hostesses, pilots traveling at altitude. So the list goes on and on and on. And, yeah. you know, um, th there's less and less evidence for the minor things. But then on the, on the positive side, of course, things we should do more of. And you've just mentioned um, social interaction. There's a, there's a good, there's quite a lot of evidence that people with a better psychological well-being have a lower risk of cancer. Um, there is evidence that exercise, if you, particularly over three or four hours a week, will reduce your risk of cancer. Uh, keeping your weight down um, are, the, are the sort of the main ones. That, that was the non-dietary ones. Then going on to diet, then you've got the uh, healthy fats, polyphenol-rich foods, etc., which I'm sure we'll mention later. Yeah, sure. Well, let's go into polyphenols, actually, because I think that's something that uh, I loved about some of the research work that you've done. The POMI-T trial is something I've shouted about quite a bit. In fact, I think I referenced them both in my uh, two books as well. Um, and, uh, and I think people might not understand exactly what a polyphenol is, uh, despite me shouting about them for so long. So, so what do we mean by polyphenol? Well, looking at your cookbooks and your blogs, it's basically everything you cook with. So it's... Uh, <laughs> it, uh, I mean, within foods, you've got the core components. So you've got the roughage, you've got the vitamins, you've got the carbohydrates, proteins, etc. Um, now you've got the vitamins and minerals, which are the essential. These are essential chemicals which the body can't make, so they have to be ingested. And if you don't have, say, a vitamin, if you're a sailor in the turn of the century, you'll get scurvy. If you're eating white rice in the Far East, you'll get very, very, etc. So they are linked to specific syndromes. Now, there's other chemicals within foods called phytochemicals, of which polyphenols are the largest group. And they're the things which give food its color, its taste, and its uh, aroma. So if you're a good cook like you, you use a lot of those because it gives it a lovely smell and taste. On top of that fantastic attribute, they're the things which have enormous health benefits. 
but they're not so obvious as say scurvy or things like that. They're linked to an increased risk of chronic degenerative conditions, which includes cancer. So if you have a diet with poor levels of polyphenols over years, you will have an increased risk of chronic degenerative disease. So that's arthritis, dementia, Alzheimer's, cancer, joint pains, the list goes on. So it's a much more slow process and it's harder to prove a direct link. But we need a lot of them on a daily basis. And many British diets, well, not just Britain, but many Western diets, if you like, are, you know, they, they're plain, they, they've got white food, um, you know, plain white bread, white rice, not so many vegetables, low in fruit. And, you know, the people who look at your program think that's not, can't be true. But when we audit, when I, we, every now and again, we audit our patients' nutrition, we audit our patients' uh, lifestyle and that's patients who've come through a unit which is pretty active in encouraging healthy living and we're quite always quite disappointed that the level of uh, polyphenols in people's diet on a typical english diet is pretty low mm. and that for that manner, matter the amount of sugar which is ingested is high and the amount of exercise is low so there's a lot we can improve on um, increasing our polyphenol levels just to double click on that for a moment uh so I, I've been doing some work as part of my uh, master's in nutritional medicine uh, at, at the University of Surrey. And one of the um, uh, topics that I'm going to be, be doing my project on is the, the consumption of fruit and vegetables as a strategy, as a very simple strategy to improve the health of the population uh, across the board. And when you look at uh, the five-a-day campaign, that I think everyone is very aware of, despite the popularity and the knowledge base of having five-a-day, the average consumption is around three portions of fruit and vegetables per day. And that spectrum is from zero to over five. Um, and you look across different countries and their respective five-day campaigns, some of it's sometimes it's seven, sometimes it's 10. In the case of Japan, I think it's about 10 or 30 different species uh, per week or per day. Uh, and the levels of consumption mirror that. So it seems as if, and I'm not trying to put words in your mouth there, but one of the reasons why we might be seeing an increase of a whole bunch of different degenerative issues that you've just named there, arthritis, uh, cancer, and, and diabetes, uh, of which cancer is the one that we're talking about today, um, could be in part related to the lack of consumption in combination with all the other features that we know that are important, sedentary lifestyles, lack of socialization, lack of exposure, uh, lack of appropriate exposure, I should say, to UV rays. Mm. Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the five a day was just, you know, I, we've all sit, sat on these committees uh, and we've had, you know, supposedly clever people coming up with a figure. I mean, that's just an arbitrary number, which was was based on, you know, could we initiate change? And there's no point being too ambitious, is it? Because people will just ignore it completely. But there's lots of where there's a paper called Pierce, which looked at people who had breast cancer and looked at the level of um, uh, fruit and veg they had a day. And there was benefits going up to, you know, 10, 15 different portions of vegetables and fruit a day. So five is a bare minimum we would get much more benefit from more um so yeah i mean it's it's whatever is achievable but in britain we're not even achieving that and i would totally agree with you i i you know if we were to at a very young age try to persuade our children 
and, and uh, everyone else to, to, to eat much, probably double or even three times the amount of fruit and veg, more herbs and spices. Fortunately, in Britain, we had the Indian influx in the 80s, which brought herbs. Because, mm. um, I mean, I don't think I grew up with a herb. I didn't know what a herb was when I grew up in South Wales. But as soon as I got to university, you know, it was curries every three times a week. And, and fortunately, those are very high in polyphenols. Mm. And, and uh, so, that, you know, it's, it's, the herb side is, in, is improving, but the levels of vegetables and fruit is still quite low. Yeah, yeah. And with, with regard to like herbs and spices and different polyphenols, so there are a bunch, a bunch of different reasons as to why um, they might be beneficial uh, from a cancer perspective, right? I wondered if we could just talk about the potential mechanisms by which polyphenols exert their anti-cancer effects, because I understand that, you know, there are direct and indirect mechanisms for those. Um, yeah, so... Um... I mean, again, this is this is a big subject and I've written a paper on it if anyone wants to read it. Um, we try to compartmentalize um, research foods into different categories, but they, they sort of cross over. Um, most uh, most poly, well, we put it in order. So most polyphenols and phytochemicals have a, a prebiotic property. So um, unhealthy bacteria um, don't have. Uh, the ability to use this um, breakdown po product of polyphenols called butyrate, and they, they, they eat sugar. So if you have a lot of sugar and low polyphenols, it, it gives a state where the bad bacteria, for the sake of argument, uh, uh, will grow. If you have more polyphenols, it, they, they're broken down in the gut, uh, they form this butyrate, which feeds the healthy bacteria. They also feed the uh, lining healthy gut lining cells so uh, so polyphenol rich diet will feed the healthy bacteria which will reduce gut inflammation they then in feed the gut cells themselves which improves gut integrity and reduces permeability and there's a phrase which some doctors like some don't called leaky gut syndrome I think it describes it quite well. I don't know about you. I, I quite like the term leaky gut because I think it, it, it really gives an idea in a patient's mind about what's going on. But I say to them, if they want to look it up in the literature, use uh, intestinal uh, hyperpermeability because that you'll find more papers than that. Uh, absolutely right. So I, I, I'm, all for, I'm all for sort of uh, easier names to remember. So, so, if you, if you then, so if you don't eat polyphenols, your gut health will get poor. You'll have an overgrowth of unhealthy bacteria. Uh, your gut will become more permeable. So then when you have toxins, other toxins in food, like the acrylamides or the P, uh, polycyclic aromatic carbon, they're absorbed quicker. Mm. Now, when they're absorbed into your gut, this creates a, a state of systemic inflammation. Um, and your immunity starts reacting to these toxins, a higher level of toxins. Now, the theory, for example, for type 1 diabetes is, is not proven, but is, you know, your immunity is fighting these toxins, which sometimes it thinks, which are foreign, but they're very similar to maybe normal gut cells. So uh, they start attacking them. And, and as a byproduct of attacking the toxins, it then attacks the joints, the pancreas, causing diabetes, uh, the heart, the brain. So this chronic inflammation is, is a very serious, um, you know, over many years, is a very serious situation where your own body is, is attacking your own cells. Um, so uh, you, really, uh, you really have to reduce the, the um, improve the gut health for that reason. Also, polyphenols have direct, direct anti-inflammatory properties of their own, mm. independent of the gut. Um, 
Now, the beauty of um, polyphenols is they don't just suppress inflammation. They make the inflammatory system more efficient. So if you stub your toe or you have an operation, it's not going to reduce the inflammatory response, but it makes it, it makes it more efficient. So you don't get an inappropriate inflammatory response against something which you shouldn't um, react against. Um, it also switches off the inflammatory response when it needs to. So that's the other thing is if you take some lots of turmeric, for example, people will say, oh, yes, I even saw something about COVID saying don't have turmeric because it would reduce the inflammatory response against the virus, which is the most nonsense thing I've ever seen. <laughs> it will encourage the inflammatory response. But as soon as that uh, inflammation source is gone, it then encourages the switching off of the inflammatory process. The other pathway is oxidation. Now, we've all most of us have heard about oxidative stress. Now, this is a situation where we have more free radicals in comparison to the antioxidant enzymes. So the balance of free radicals is too high, too, too many free radicals in, in comparison. We need some free radicals, as you know, to uh, help with apoptosis and normal uh, fight against viruses and things. But most of us with a Western type lifestyle have too many free radicals and not enough antioxidant enzymes. So what uh, polyphenols do is, again, they upregulate the antioxidant system to, so that when you have free radicals, you're able to deal with it. What they also do, there's a, a, an enzyme called CAP1. They also, again, like inflammation, they switch it off when the oxidative stress goes. So in other words, the time your cells spend in optimal oxidative uh, balance is increased. Unlike vitamin A and vitamin E or direct antioxidant supplements, and this is my pet hate when people put polyphenols and antioxidants in the same basket. Um, yes, they can encourage improved oxidative um, uh, enzymes, but they're not direct antioxidants. Vitamin A and vitamin E are completely different. They are direct antioxidants and taking supplements, for example, vitamin A and vitamin E, we would very much not recommend uh, and also they have the ability to switch off this CAP1 pathway. So you, you, your antioxidant pathway remains too high for longer. So you get a thing called oxidative, uh, antioxidative stress. Mm. Uh, so that's the other pathway. The other thing they have as well is direct anti-cancer uh, properties. So they can reduce, and this is more your cell line and animal data, they can reduce proliferation of cancer cells. They can trigger... Uh, anti-apoptosis pathway. So they, in other words, they encourage cells to die when they ought to. Mm -hmm. There's a thing called angiogenesis. So they um, disencourage new blood vessels to form into cancer cells. So there's, there's some direct uh, properties. Going down the, the other indirect properties, for example, they help with the reduced absorption of sugar through your gut and they improve insulin resistance. So uh, they... They help uh, protect you from diabetes and all sorts of things. And, and there's also a, a thought they reduce the risk of obesity and other things which have cancer links. So it's a bit of a complicated subject, but I hope I got that over okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, really, I really appreciate you going through it all systematically, actually, because I think people need to understand that uh, when you have a food, not a supplement, which is uh, you know, a, a part of a food that's uh, built up in, and um, given in a dose that's unnaturally high, 
Um, and there might be some, you know, utility uh, uses of supplements in, in, in certain cases. But um, when it comes to food, you've got a suite of different polyphenols, these plant chemicals that exert multiple different effects, something that we call pleiotropic effects on the human cell. And it's quite hard to mimic. And the other thing I think is, and I'm guilty of this as well, we take a very reductionist approach of a binary approach. Okay, this is inflammation. I want to try and reduce it. Or this is having an anti-cancer effect. And this is why this is having the desired positive impact. Where in reality, it's keeping everything in this dynamic uh, balance. Um, And if you think about what cancer is at a very basic level, you know, it's a a population of cells that is dividing beyond the confines of what is normal. And a normal cell goes through apoptosis, which is essentially cell cell death or self-death or suicide. Um, I think that's where the the term actually comes from, uh, from Greek or Latin. It evades me now. Um, And so having that anti-apoptosis is actually... Uh, something that is is quite useful to understand as well, and I think you know when you go into the mechanisms behind polyphenols, um, it it just gives you this understanding of like wow, there's so many different pathways by which these foods can exert positive influences on in a preventative manner. Absolutely right. I mean, the more you look into when we started looking using Herceptin, mm. uh, and which was a drug which targets uh, overexpression of a gene called HER2. At the same time, they realized that uh, many of the polyphenols in olive oil uh, actually did the same thing. I mean, I'm not suggesting you take olive oil instead of your Herceptin, sure. but you could enhance your effect uh, through diet. Uh, so many things which occur naturally, these PD-1 inhibitors, which are the latest immunotherapy, there's now strong evidence that uh, polyphenols and, and bacterial rich gut will enhance their performance. Um, so whole food has it all built in. Um, mm. And the danger is, as you, as you just said, to take out a single chemical and think you've got the answer. Uh, I don't think nature works like that. Yeah, yeah. And, and on the, on the um, topic of uh, looking at cell line cultures and animal models, I'm interested in how we extrapolate or investigate the anti-proliferative effects of food. So the anti-cancer effects of foods, um, the plant chemicals foods, and and test that in a logical and scientific way because i think there's multiple if you look at you know the benefits of um turmeric or a particular type of spice for example there's multiple claims that you can find on social media but i think it's taken very much out of context and there i think spawns an idea that you can directly treat cancers with foods which is not what anyone's saying here at all so how do we how do we test foods in a scientifically rigorous way that makes it a lot more mainstream and acceptable to mainstream um uh, oncology circles um yeah you've got to be careful when you look at cells in a petri dish and you're dropping in um, chemicals which are extracted from foods. So that's a long way off, you know, eating one of your meals in terms of the effect on the body. Um, but, you know, there's a whole process for drugs, which is cell lines, then animal implanted tumor data. Um, I'm, you know, I'm more keen on, on looking at the clinical studies. So um, uh, looking at a, a group of patients and giving them concentrated whole foods. Uh, um, when you talking about convincing colleagues it's very hard to design a study saying you know buy your cookbook and eat those foods for two months and then look at the impact that would be great 
mm. but the compliance and the conformity would be very difficult to quantify. So that's why sometimes a, a concentrated food tablet for research is very good because you can say, you know, what you can add the foods you want as long as they're whole foods. Uh, like turmeric, green tea, etc. You can measure the candidate polyphenols to make sure they had the required amount in them. Um, and that's more convincing to other medical staff and health professionals. It may not be the way forward, but at least we'll have the answer that those categories of food will have an anti-cancer effect. So I'm very keen to design um, those sort of trials, looking at people with cancer. We just yesterday went through an ethics application to using these foods for an anti-COVID effect. Um, wow. We're also looking at um, another study, which is, was just going through, but all got cancelled because of COVID, uh, looking at whether you could take those foods and reduce the amount of arthralgia and improve your exercise levels, because arthralgia is a, is a barrier to exercising. Um, and also on, on the back of that, if you are a keen exerciser, could that encourage you to exercise more? So all those things, I'm afraid, have to be done with a supplement-like product. But the conclusions are not that you just need to take that supplement. They're hopefully the conclusion will be expanded that those foods, that category of foods, is beneficial. But, you, but the supplements are very useful in the research domain. But we're definitely not saying, as you just intimated, of, of taking a specific chemical out of food. Because that research is, all, you know, there's pretty good research about taking a single vitamin or taking a single uh, polyphenol like resveratrol or lycopene. And whenever someone's done that, and, and this is what surprised me in the media, um, you know, if you've taken like all the studies of lycopene, for example, which is one of the polyphenols in a tomato, um, have all been negative. Whereas all the studies of tomatoes or, or, or the cohorts have all been positive. Yeah. So it's not just the lycopene, is it? It's, it's, yeah. And the same, um, you know, the same applies to vitamin A and vitamin E. And actually, most of those studies have shown an increased risk of cancer, uh, an increased risk of uh, reducing sports performance and exercise levels. Um, so, I mean, the data is already there. We shouldn't be um, meddling with food too much. You should try to use the whole thing, but you can, you can achieve that with some supplements. Yeah, and, and to your point actually about um, using supplements that are derived from whole foods, and perhaps we could draw on your experience of the POMI tea trials. Do you think the way forward to test uh, the anti-cancer ability of foods in a more rigorous way is to derive supplements essentially like dehydrated blueberries, for example, or dehydrated pomegranate. Put that into a capsule that represents an achievable physical amount of food that you can buy or, or actually you know, eat from your local supermarket or whatever on a regular basis and then follow up uh, uh, patients uh, either you know, during cancer or, or whatever your, your um, experiment is looking at uh, for a defined period of time. Before, and that's a way of actually getting this into the mainstream sort of thinking? Uh, yes, because there's, there's not... The, we, have research, we have the information from various sources. We have things like cohort data. Um, we've just conducted um, two massive studies with 155,000 patients followed for 12 years, where we asked them questionnaires what they ate, 
all did. And then we correlate those questions against the subsequent incidence of cancer. And most of the information about food comes from those sort of studies. And they tend to be, there's lots of conflicting things. That's why the Daily Mail one day will say, you know, broccoli's fantastic. And a week later, it's saying it's the worst thing since whatever. So because it's hard to prove, we just, we, for example, did, uh, there was a study published a year ago, you may have seen it, that tea increased the risk of prostate cancer. Because one of these large studies, group tea with five or six other things, I have to say, and came out with a slight risk. So I'm a tea drinker. So I then... Uh, did, this, did the analysis of tea and prostate cancer, but specifically tea, not grouped on its own. Unfortunately, we came out that if you drink two or three cups of tea a day, you have a reduced risk of prostate cancer. So I've hopefully waved the flag for the tea industry, although I didn't get any sponsorship <laughs> from Tetley, I have to say, I did ask. Uh, uh, but we've waved the flag that it's safe to drink tea and it will reduce, it is linked to a reduced risk of prostate cancer. We did the same analysis for broccoli and we found that if you eat, you know, uh, equivalent to about half a cup uh, every other day, you have a reduced risk of cancer. So that's why that's what, and we were publishing. We were supposed to publish that in ASCO this year, but it's cancelled. But nevertheless, that's how you get these information, which comes out and appears in the Daily Mail. But then, if you want more precise information, so how much broccoli, you know, what are the anti-cancer effects? You then have to do a dietary intervention study. Mm. So the POMI tea study was an intervention, which was double blind randomized. We got broccoli, green tea, turmeric and pomegranate, whole foods, freeze dried, concentrated, and compared that against a placebo. Now that gives you much more grade one evidence. So if you get an effect on that, which, which we did, um, we can then in much more confidence to say, these are the foods, um, which, which have an anti-cancer effect. That's not to say other foods don't. Um, and then it's your choice, of course, after we have that grade one information. Um, obviously, we would tell people to eat those foods, number one. Mm. We've already said earlier in the programme that unfortunately most people don't. So a lot of people take uh, reassurance to buy the supplement and take it. That's their choice. But at least we've got the evidence and the information. Um, and there, what it can do is also some foods are very synergistic. So we know that tea and pomegranate have a level of polyphenols which work together because we've known from animal studies and cell line studies that those two polyphenols, they work in different parts of the cell cycle. So one might be blocking, you know, G1, might be blocking the synthetic stage. Others work on inflammation. The other works on oxidative balance. So you can manipulate foods a little bit more. Uh, by putting them in a supplement. We're not, we're not saying everyone should just be on a supplement and yeah. do what they want, that's for sure. Well, that's really interesting because I think the more trials we have that mimic what you did with pommy tea, the more likely we are to find a suite of different foods that are just as impressive as the exotic ones that we're all well of, like teas and, and pomegranate and uh, turmeric and stuff. And perhaps that's a way to replicate almost like a food cocktail to test on different cell cancer lines. And perhaps we can actually um, demonstrate the synergies between different types of foods and it informs people's choices. And, you know, this isn't to say that, you know, this is exactly what you have to eat if you have this particular type of cancer. But I think people are crying out for a bit more information in this in the same way that me as a medical professional is crying out for a bit more information about, you know, whether this type of uh, anti-cholesterol medication is going to be appropriate for this patient based on their genetic uh, history. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I totally agree. I think the, I think there's, we're, we're in its infancy. Uh, I mean, that's why I started getting into this research because there's, there's such a lack of information on it. Uh, as I say, it's all based on cohort data, which is difficult to interpret. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, if, if you are, have HER2 positive breast cancer, you know, should you be having more olive oil? We, we know that it can affect that receptor, but nobody's done the trial, the randomized trial to see if it improves outcome. Um, uh, we're moving on to more symptom related research because it's easier to get the answer. I'd love to do a study of, say, POMITI or something equivalent, you know, given to a population for 20 years and seeing yeah. if it affects the cancer rate, but it's going to be impossible to do. But what we can do is look, ask people why they're not exercising, which we have. For example, we found out that 40% of them say, because I've got joint pains because of the treatment you gave me. Maybe we can use foods um, to, to reduce joint pains, which will allow them to exercise. Um, and you'll get that answer much quicker. Uh, and we know that exercise has enormous health benefits, including reduce the risk of cancer. So it's, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. But you can't, um, you know, for the government to put that into a leaflet or a, a health campaign, you do need more evidence. So you do need to do the randomized trial, which we're doing. Uh, the same with COVID. There's lots, and you've probably read lots on the internet about polyphenols have antiviral properties, but not all of them. You know, so which foods have the, the highest antiviral properties and which ones affect RNA viruses, which ones affect DNA viruses? You know, they, they are different. Uh, we, we do, we've been working with Nottingham University and University of Bedfordshire looking to see which studies so far have shown that which polyphenols have antiviral properties. And there, there is a lot of evidence out there, but nobody's done a randomized trial to confirm the animal data. And that's what we're trying to start. Um, but it makes perfect sense, because if you look at the people, for example, who have COVID and get ill from it, you know, there's a strong correlation between diet, poor gut health. I'm not saying that's the only reason, but there's a, there's a correlation. So if you were a, a family with a family member involved, you know, they're thinking, how can I protect myself? It does make perfect sense to, to start broadening your diet, improving your general health, improving your gut health, having more polyphenols. Uh, but it would be very nice to, to actually get the grade one evidence for that. Yeah, and I, and I think people are going to be crying out for this. And I think certainly it's going to change the way people think about food in a preventative and a protective role. And I, I think hopefully coming out of this, self-care is definitely going to be evident. And I think a lot of people are going to be interested in lifestyle means. And perhaps that will generate a lot more uh, research funding for this. Before I forget, what polyphenols are you actually using in your, um, in your trials? Because I think people are going to be fascinated by that. Good question. I'm I'm a bit nervous about sharing the. <laughs> yeah, I can I mean, understand. It's, it's, it's based on. Uh, I can give you one or two. Okay. Uh, for example, when I caught COVID about six weeks ago, uh, you know, I, I I rushed out and had a lot of chamomile tea, for example, yeah. because chamomile has a very high uh, level of this. Uh, I can never remember it. Apigenin polyphenol, which has been okay. used a lot in China for. Uh, anti-replication viral studies. Uh, at the end of the day, chamomile tea is, is safe. You can drink large quantities. So it's not going to do any harm. So I'm pretty, pretty uh, happy to share that information. So uh, uh, I'm sure chamomile tea sales went up enormously. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, but 
you know, it, it's, it, to be honest, there's a lots of different foods. There's lots of different foods which have um, antiviral properties. The turmeric is one of the tea, uh, chamomile, um, um, citrus bioflavonoids, so uh, whole fruits. Uh, so it's basically the, the whole thing. It's just whether we can concentrate them and put them in a capsule, you will get an added benefit than just eating those foods. And that's what the trials, trials trying to show. If you really increase the amounts, perhaps higher than you would be able to in a normal diet, you would shorten the instance of the disease. Um, but again, that, that remains to be proven and then really shouldn't preempt the trial results, to be honest. And we should try to wait for that. I know it's everyone's keen to rush out. But in the meantime, you know, part of the research we did for the COVID, what came out pretty high is, is gut health. Yeah. Um, because when you catch COVID, um, most of us fortunately uh, have a very mild illness or just a flu-like illness. But the, the people who go on to have a serious complication, it's due to a cytokine, cytokine storm mm -hmm. where your own body inflammatory system overreacts to the virus and starts attacking your lung cells and you get these inflammatory infiltrates and that causes severe chest infections. Now, of course, it makes perfect sense to make sure your inflammatory system is as healthy as possible. So any advice to improve gut health would make no, that would be my one number one recommendation. So to improve gut health, more polyphenols, bacteria-rich foods, cut out processed sugar, and exercise, and eat, eat, eat your recipes. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I'm glad you gave, you gave that as a recommendation. I, I keep on getting asked, actually, if I've changed my diet in the response to the pandemic. And the honest answer is no. Um, if anything, I cook exactly the same way but what i cook on a daily basis includes things like onion garlic loads of prebiotic fibers it's plant focused i'm not vegan or vegetarian but it's tons of plants on a daily basis i'm having pulses fiber and all the different things that we know will nurture that gut population um the only additional thing i perhaps is herbal tea and i make a, a turmeric and ginger br uh, brew so I, I basically blend it up and boil it um for a bit and then cool it and then i just sip it like throughout the week really and i actually quite like the taste of it um with lemon juice as well so whether that has any additional benefits i don't know but i like the taste of it anyway so well carry the, the on. nice thing about all the things you mentioned in the whole food format, in, in our research and the background to these studies, you really can't find anything to show they're harmful. I mean, you really have to be extreme uh, to show any harm. So it, it's, it's all good. And uh, yes, I mean, the, the, all the foods you mentioned all came up in the, in the choice of foods we were going to put in the supplement um, of, of polyphenol-rich, antiviral, improving gut health. So. Um, you know, that would, I would, that would be my number one uh, recommendation. Oh, great. That's good to know. <laughs> um, uh, we can't really talk, uh, we can't talk about cancer without really coming to the to topic of sugar. Because I think um, whilst everyone agrees that processed sugar is certainly something that we have in excess in our diets, and that's been laid out in a whole bunch of dietary studies looking at the just the sheer amounts that we have in our food. And it's, it's the hidden sugars that really, 
uh, uh, pain me because people don't realize that when you have your tomato sauce or when you buy that nice looking package from a health store, it's actually full of added sugars in different formats or whether you you know have it from agave or coconut sugar, people don't really realize it's still having that sort of uh, effect, um, whether it spikes your uh, insulin levels or not. So perhaps we could talk about the relationship with sugar and cancer um, and also talk a bit about the Warburg effect, um, which I know is something that you've talked about extensively in your book. So if people want to uh, really do a deep dive into it, then definitely pick up a copy. Um, but perhaps we could talk about that and why there's a sort of a lot of interest um, in oncology with sugar and cancer. Um, yeah, I'm glad you brought up that. So not everyone is interested. Not many oncologists are actually convinced. It's 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 changing. The world is changing more and more. You see um, medical journals with the topics, etc. Um, and most dietitians, for some reason, seem to be against conversations about sugar. I, I, it's a bit of a mystery. And I often get a dietitian standing up in the, at the end of one of my talks saying, I really disagree with your comments on sugar. Wow. And I don't know why, because there's lots of cohort data out there which have linked uh, the levels of processed sugar intake with an increased risk of cancer. I mean, there's about 10 massive sugar. The, the study I just mentioned about tea, we mm. looked at sugar, whether you added tea to, sugar to your tea and found that the healthy benefits of tea are completely lost when you add sugar to them. Mm. So um, there's lots of data. There's also lots of data show if you have processed sugar, you increase your diabetic diabetes risk, type two diabetes risk. That's without saying, we know that type two diabetes is strongly linked to cancer as well. Um, so, um, you know, the evidence is there, you know, what more evidence do you want? You can't do a double blind randomized trial of giving people sticky buns three times a day against, you know, another food. So the evidence is there. And also in, in the, um, the pathways are there. They've all been mapped out. We know that processed sugar feeds the unhealthy, um, gut bacteria. Mm -hmm. So it, it causes a reduction in gut health. Uh, we know they have a direct pro it has a direct pro-inflammatory effect, and over time uh, it uh, increases. Uh, if you have lots of sugar regularly, your pancreas has to pump out insulin uh, at a high level throughout the day, and basically uh, over time you get a thing called insulin resistance. So your cells become resistant to the level of insulin. So your insulin levels end up having to go higher and higher and higher and higher, and the effect on cell gets lower and lower, and what is not known that well is that many cancer cells have insulin um, receptors on them. So when you've got very high levels of insulin, you're actually driving cancer cells to grow faster. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's, I don't get it that people don't realize that sugar is uh, unhealthy, uh, as opposed to more complex uh, carbohydrates or fats or whatever, uh, which are slowly absorbed and the trigger for the glycemic index is much lower. And that glycemic trigger does seem to be um, pretty harmful. Um, now, Warburg, uh, you came on. Shall I go on to Warburg now? Yeah, please. Yeah, yeah. Um, Warburg said uh, in the 1920s, he felt actually that cancer cells have this preference for feeding on sugar. As you know, there's three pathways for a cell to make energy, which is a basically conversion of ADP to ATP. There's glycolysis, there's the Krebs cycle, and there's oxidative phosphorylation. The first part, 
glycolysis uh, uses effectively sugar. I mean, there's different types of sugar, but effectively sugar. Um, now, any cell replicating rapidly, in other words, if you cut yourself on your, your, your skin, so a skin cell which is healing rapidly, or a cancer cell, would prefer to use glycolysis because it's a, it produces energy rapidly. Um, so um, Warbib observed that cancer cells were using more sugar than ordinary cells. But his hypothesis, well, I'm afraid, incorrect. He then said that, oh, that's because cancer cells have a defect in their mitochondrium, which is, which is where um, uh, glycolysis occurs. So, um, and therefore, if you withdraw sugar from the diet, cancer cells won't be able to use sugar and therefore um, they will die. Um, unfortunately, that's not, not true because, uh, first of all, you can't withdraw sugar so much that would deplete it and you become hypoglycemic because you would die of hypoglycemia before you get to a level where a cancer cell couldn't use the sugar. Uh, secondly, uh, it's been observed very clearly since then that if you would reduce the sugar low enough, cancer cells just simply switch to ketones, fats, and proteins. They can, they're cleverer than you think, to, to be honest. Uh, but that's not to say he was incorrect that sugar, increased sugar drives cancer cells for the other reasons I've just said because sugar creates inflammation. Inflammation uh, is, is a factor, for some reason, the inflammatory cytokines directly cause cancer cells to grow. They, they promote other inflammatory reactions, but as a byproduct of that, they, they have direct effects on proliferation, apoptosis, angiogenesis. So he's correct, but his, his hypothesis is incorrect. But nevertheless, it's still, the message is the same, processed sugar, uh, increases the risk of cancer. If you've got cancer, it will encourage cancer cells to grow faster. I, I, I'm, I'm glad you clarified that because I think a lot of people would just take that as, God's, as gospel. And, you know, it, it's a very um, it's a very easy and simple explanation as to why removing sugar would be good at reducing cancer and potentially removing cancer cells in their entirety. But I think what you pointed out there very clearly is cancer cells are smart and they will adapt uh, the substrate by which they create energy for themselves by moving towards ketones uh, other types of fats and um, proteins as well is there an argument and i don't know if this is borne out in rcts and i'm very I'm, I'm sure that there isn't this at the moment but perhaps cycling different substrates in someone's diet so calorie restriction a ketogenic diet and then actually moving that cycling that perhaps every month or so and its impact on cancer so it's sort of you're trying to outsmart the cancer machinery as it is uh, uh becoming metabolically flexible to those different um uh types of food uh yeah i mean that's an interesting question about alternating diets i mean it's a good idea i think to alternate diets anyway because mm. you, you you're going to you're not going to risk having a mineral or vitamin deficiency by just having the same food every day, that's for sure. Um, people who've gone completely obsessive about the ketogenic diet, uh, you know, the, the other thing um, with, the, with that diet, it, it does reduce fruit and it re uh, reduces some vegetables as well, which I think is completely wrong. Um, there is sugar in fruit, uh, but as you know, it's, it's in a more, especially if you have the whole fruit, it's in a more complicated form. Um, it, it, the absorption through the gut wall is slower. Um, <clears throat> it contains more polyphenols, which um, encourages 
insulin resistance and again slows transfer across the gut wall. So um, the ketogenic diet does tell people to avoid uh, fruit, which I think is, is wrong. You're, you're going to miss out on a lot of healthy things if you do that. Um, but um, I, in terms of calorie restriction, there's a lot of data now um, for intermittent fasting, which seems to be encouraging. Um, and that, in a way, yes, it does switch. Your, your body does start using ketones and fats instead of sugar. Mm-hmm. So in a way, you're, you're sort of doing the same thing. Um, but you don't need to be extreme. And the, 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 the latest data I, I saw, if you can go 13 hours overnight fasting, you're all, your body is already in a sort of ketogenic state by the morning. As long as you don't spoil that by having a sugary cereal, which many people do. Uh, so you start off with absolutely no processed sugar in the morning. And also snacking between meals. If you have breakfast at 7.30 and then don't have anything till one, if you haven't had sugar for breakfast, you won't feel hungry till one. And again, your body absorbs what's in the stomach. Uh, the gut enzymes have had time to sort of relax and calm down. Uh, your metabolism slows because you're not having to digest food all the time. Uh, and again, you get that reduction in sugar and the body then starts looking for other energy sources like fats and things, which is good, if, especially if you're overweight, you'll start removing the fats from your, your body. And it creates a, a reduced inflammation. So, yeah, I mean, introducing a little bit of fasting, I think, is good. But you can achieve that on a daily basis just by extending the time between meals. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think there's definitely a lot of interest in fasting. And I'm personally interested in it uh, quite a bit. Um, I know there's, there isn't that much data, uh, human trial data anyway, on the advent of uh, fasting mimicking diets, which Walter Longo is um, sort of pioneering out on West Coast. We actually had him on the podcast. It hasn't been released yet, um, talking about the, his data. Um, I'm wondering about your opinion. And, and just for the listener, fasting mimicking diets are essentially where you mimic a um, a fasted state by drastically reducing your calories sub 500 calories i think it is over a five-day period um, and the utility of that i think is before the use of chemotherapy to see if it actually increases responsiveness to it do you have any thoughts on on fasting in general and its response to and the improved or uh, ne- negligible effect on on chemotherapy uh- yeah, I mean, it also depends on your, if, if you're overweight, I think you're going to get more benefit from fasting because it's, it's one of the best ways to, uh, to help you lose weight, that's for sure. Because um, your body starts looking for energy in your fat stores rather than what's in your stomach. Um, we, in our blog, what we do is we, we trigger a feature based on the questions we get asked from patients. And we did uh, about six months ago, for some reason, they had a lot of questions about whether I should fast during my uh, chemotherapy. I also, um, uh, the London Oncology Clinic often ring me uh, and say, you know, we've had questions, can I do a little summary for them so they can advise people? So I did look at a lot of the data at that point. Um, and it's interesting, you know, I have to say, uh, there's, no con- uh, there's no confirmation on trials yet. Uh, but if you are overweight, uh, to fast during your chemotherapy, there does seem to be some advantages because as you said, you're, you're reducing uh, the inflammation which goes on and these inflammatory markers can promote cancer cells. It does seem to help with uh, nausea. Uh, you have less nausea. Um, but the, the, it's, it, the answer's not there yet. And um, what we don't want is people who've maybe lost a bit of weight, maybe a bit underweight, mm. um, 
fasting and that actually will do them more harm than good because the body will start using its protein and they'll become cachexic and we know that cachexia is linked to a very poor prognosis. Um, saying that you can get uh, sarcopenic cachexia which is where you get a very overweight person um, and going into a fasting state the body starts using the the fat uh, the pro the, the the proteins instead of the fat so mm. it, it can be dangerous in all um body types uh but you know i think what they're doing in america is is quite useful because they they're trying to sort of um do some formal trials where people are fasting even going on treadmills there's a there's an oncology unit in Minnesota, where they're putting people on fasting and on treadmills to, to really reduce your uh, sugar levels and then giving chemotherapy to see if they can improve the therapeutic window. And I'm very interested in those, but I think we've got to wait for the results before advising patients to do that. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think uh, perhaps that's in response to the, the theory that if you reduce your sugar level um, through a diet that uh, reduces carbohydrates and processed sugar, um, you and you also promote exercise you actually upregulate your muscles ability to drive sugar into the cells um, and ketones into the cells so it preferentially takes it away from tumor cells as well so you're essentially starving the tumor of all the substrate so perhaps that's part of it i mean there's so many theories and i think it's quite hard to for a patient, anyway, I'm thinking purely from the listener's uh, perspective here, it's quite hard to keep up to date with these things and find out actually what is actually personally relevant to them and whether this is actually something could harm or or um, benefit them. And with that in mind, I think we should perhaps segue into, well, we've talked about everything from, from diet and lifestyle in a preventative uh, manner. We're, we're, we're stepping into like, if you're actually with cancer, did the same sort of principles of polyphenol rich, polyphenol rich foods, low processed sugar, um, exercise, and uh, looking after your gut apply during therapies? Um yeah, thanks, Ruby. Um, just, can I just go back to the sugar just briefly during chemo? Sure, yeah, yeah. Go, go for it. I don't like the, using the term starving cancer. I, I think mm. it's, a, it's, I think you get the picture and it's a good visual effect, but whether yeah. you can actually reduce calories enough, I think that it's a parasite. They're going to use the energy they can over your own body. So you'll starve mm. yourself more. You can create an, a, a biochemical environment which makes that tumour less likely to want to grow and spread by reducing sugar so it's the same thing it's just a different terminology but of course we we now give things called bisphosphonates to harden people's bones which can damage the teeth so we forget, forgot about the dental problems so reducing sugar is good for that we know that obesity is higher after cancer treatments and we know that sugar is one of the strongest reasons why people put on weight so uh, you know, there's many other reasons um, it increases fatigue which is a big problem after cancer treatments so you know if, if you were doing one thing to help yourself with cancer reducing sugar is definitely one of them and perhaps have some intermittent fasting I'm, I'm glad you clarified no no I'm glad you clarified that I think it's quite important to to make you realize that it's a it's a highly um, complex and uh, a efficient enemy uh, for lack of a better word because you know it's not as simple as that i'll just cut one supply and it'll be over it will find a way to try and uh, thrive um and i think yeah it's it's uh, too simplistic to just say you know you can just starve cancer by doing xyz so no i'm glad you clarified that uh, no I'm, I'm a i'm a big campaign in fact uh, you may 
quite an amusing study we've just submitted for publication was um, when you go into a cancer unit, the first thing you see is a bowl of boiled sweets on the, on the reception. You go into the chemo suite, you see, I mean, well-wishing patients have donated, well, you know what it's like, chocolates, yeah. cakes. I mean, I think junior doctors are the most, uh, they, could, they could name every chocolate in a chocolate. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, and I said, look, it, come on, it's given the bad, but we're telling, one, we're telling people to stop having sugar. And then you see that in the chemo suite. So I, we just finished a study where we withdrew all sugar from the, the public display, so receptionists, and we replaced it with nuts and fruit. Uh, so we had a 75% sign-up rate from the staff, but the other 25% would, were uh, kindly agreed not to eat the sugary items in front of the other staff. And then we measured um, weight. There was a 8% reduction in weight in three months, which is oh, wow. really higher than any exercise intervention. We measured happiness scores through a formal validated question. Happiness scores went up. And then we, then we did a survey of patients saying, what did you think of that intervention? You know, where if you, a busy nurse might have missed their lunch, instead of reaching out to a bar of chocolate, because it's in mm. front of them, they reach out to an apple or uh, some nuts. And 95% of patients said they thought it was a good thing and it encouraged them to change the diet because it gave the right message. Um, so that might, we, we, we've just submitted for publication. It was only a small study of, of uh, 75 staff. But if you think if you expand that across the whole of the NHS, absenteeism for obesity is very high. Um, you know, that might be a big cultural change we can work on because it's a very simple manoeuvre. You just remove the chocolates and add a bowl of fruit. You know. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, it's a cultural shift that we have to attain. And like that study eloquently demonstrates, you you have so many different knock-on effects and you know it's nice to look at bmi and weight as an endpoint because that's what gets a lot of people excited but really it's it's the impression it's you know the messaging like you said and when you look at the 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 mechanic uh, the mechanistic benefits of reducing that sugar like you just uh, insulotropic effects the satiation signals the impact on uh, insulin growth like factor etc you know you, you're doing literally doing amazing things and one of the best things you can do so i, I think that's wonderful I'm, I'm i will be looking out for that i'll be championing that for sure yeah i mean it 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 was in terms of statistics, it probably wasn't the most robust because it's hard to control if, you, if you're sneaking under the table and, and getting a Mars bar. But uh, uh, as you say, it's, it's, it's creating an impression, which is leading by example. I mean, you have to, uh, like what you're doing, I mean, you, you have to show um, the benefits. So if you, if you have cancer, uh, perhaps you're just about to go into, uh, into therapy or perhaps you're still undergoing therapy. What do you say about um, the evidence base behind dietary change, whether this is something that you, we should be looking into, or whether you know, it marries that of a preventative uh, anti-cancer diet? Um, yeah, as I said before, most of the advice, um, cutting out bad fats, carcinogens, um, still apply if you've got cancer. For example, if, when you have can many cancers, mutate as they go along. Um, so uh, unhealthy lifestyle, in my opinion, does um, create an environment that more mutations take place. So it's more likely to degenerate into a more aggressive tumor, um, chemo-resistant type of tumor. 
so it's still good to reduce your carcinogens and, and lead a healthy lifestyle. Also, we've, we haven't really talked about um, coping with cancer treatments, the fatigue, the increased risk of diabetes, uh, the weight gain, arthritis, cognitive problems. They are all significantly reduced. And those studies have been done if you lead a healthy lifestyle. So there's absolutely a strong encouragement for patients to say, you know, it's not too late. You can still improve your outcomes. Um, well, there's two things I'd like to talk about. One about the prehabilitation for surgery or chemotherapy. And I don't know if you're going to talk about if you've had your cancer, how can you reduce the risk of relapse? Because it's yeah. like two subjects. But I'll go on to prehab. The Royal College of Anesthetists have just launched with Macmillan a very big campaign about um, prehab. So if you have a, a if you've been diagnosed with cancer, your operation in three weeks' time, what can you do in that three weeks to change your body environment? So that when that tumor is being manipulated, it's less likely to spread or your immune system is upregulated to deal with some shredding of cancer cells. And there's, there's, you know, there's lots of evidence. If you, if you go into an exercise program, for example, you, um, you, you're not going to influence your body weight, but you will reduce the risk of, of pulmonary embolus and um, venous thrombosis, which is actually uh, much higher than you think a lot of mortality for cancer is not from the cancer it's because you've died of a pulmonary embolus so you can reduce that risk um, infection you can pick up a superbug or more recently you can pick up covid in hospital and there is uh, reasonable evidence that if you improve your gut health through various measures you will reduce the risk of getting a superbug so there's a lot you can do in the acute phase, if, you, if you're scheduled for an operation to, to reduce your odds. Um, as I said, I've already, we talked about during chemotherapy, you can enhance, um, well, you can prevent many of the side effects. And then of course, we're dealing, then you, once you've had your surgery, uh, the time it takes you to recover can be improved, particularly with exercise, stretching, keeping your body weight down. And in the longer term, if you've gone into remission, what can you do to reduce the chance of that cancer relapsing? And that's pretty much the same as the advice of preventative. Mm, mm. And uh, with specific regard to gut health, because I think that's um, becoming quite a popular topic. And there's some some information. I haven't had a chance to read the papers, if I'm honest, about um, uh, patients who have had improve or uh, who have good markers of gut health responding to treatments better than cohorts who don't. Is there any way in which people beyond the pulses and polyphenols uh, to do to actually improve their gut health with the potential of improving outcomes? Uh, yeah, I've, I've not seen too many papers on you know whether you can get a better response rate, say, to chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. But what tends to happen when you come into hospital and you get given antibiotics uh, or chemotherapy or even radiotherapy is, is it damages your gut health. So it's, it's, prob it's more that if you have poor gut health, you're not going to do as well, rather than can you, um, can you make your gut better than it already is. Most of the data shows, for example, if you have a good gut, so if you have a healthy diet, you can't actually make it better by taking, say, probiotic supplements or so forth, because it's already good. But that's not the issue. Most of the time, people don't have a good gut, and you can correct that. Um, for example, during cape cytidine chemotherapy, which causes profuse diarrhea, 
there is data to show if you take a probiotic supplement between cycles, you're less likely to have diarrhea. But more recently, the exciting, um, the exciting um, new knowledge is that these new immunotherapies for, um, for many cancers, um, the, the, particularly these things called PDL1 inhibitors, now these are when a can what one thing a cancer does to stop it being killed by the immunity is basically forming a cloak around it, which sheds uh, some of the antigens which the body recognises as foreign, and that's why it can sort of mix around, go in and out of the tissues, and cause enormous damage without the immunity attacking it. Now we have these things called PDL1 inhibitors, which stop blocks that ability for the cancer cell to cloak itself. And so therefore, it's like, uh, it's like Harry Potter taking off his invisible cloak in, in, uh, in one of his films. And, and suddenly you, he gets seen and the immunity attacks it, which is great. This is exactly what you want, your own body to recognize cancers as foreign and kill them. Um, and that's what these PD-1 inhibitors do. But um, they work very much better if you have a good gut health or a good immunity. In fact, the difference is up to 40%. So it was observed in the MD Anderson in Texas about uh, a year ago that there was a 40% difference in response rates between people who have a good gut health or not. The other thing is that these drugs are quite toxic. They cause quite profuse um, um, diarrhea and that can be life-threatening. And the incidence of those very severe toxicity, again, is significantly reduced if you have good gut health and you have a good lifestyle. So now... The, 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 all of a sudden, what you're doing and lifestyle is suddenly being driven to the forefront because they're now seeing if you do a prehab program where you improve gut health and reducing sugar, having some probiotics, lots of polyphenols, exercising, um, lots of uh, fiber, you're then going to be in a much stronger position to responding and tolerating these drugs. So, uh, I mean, up to 40% is a massive change in response rates. Absolutely, yeah. And I think, you know, putting it in simplistic terms, what these uh, drugs are doing are heightening the uh, ability of your own innate immune system to attack cancer cells. So that is predicated on you having a robust immune system. And good gut health is pivotal to having a good immune system so it makes perfect sense right um and that's re that's really really encouraging to know i i think so as well i mean I, it, for what we can do in the meantime is give general advice of how to improve your gut health um in cambridge and many places they're trying to go a step further and i think it's very useful research but uh, they're trying to find individual bacteria which might have a an even more enhancing effect which is great research but um you know we'll see what happens but i think you know most of the effect is going to be a general improvement of gut health rather than trying to find one or two specific bacteria because what they're hoping you could take that bacteria from say one person who's had an excellent response and um and transplant it into another person and fecal transplantation is becoming quite exciting as a field um, you know, and watch that space. But in the meantime, I think you can get most of the benefit by just improving your own gut bacteria.
Absolutely. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And um, to beyond uh, uh, prehab and uh, during cancer therapies, I'm assuming same sort of advice, polyphenol rich diet, uh, exercise if you can, and also uh, perhaps looking after your gut health um, with a few uh, extra additions to your diet and maybe supplementation. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, we, we, we didn't mention vitamin D. Um, very important. Oh, yeah. There's lots of studies coming out now showing if you're vitamin D deficient, you're more likely to get cancer. Uh, there's one in people with um, bowel cancer. They responded less well to chemotherapy agents if they had low vitamin D. Um, again, don't be don't interpret that data that if you then take massive doses of vitamin D, you're more likely to respond. It's more if you don't have enough, you're less likely to respond. So it's about creating the balance. But for men on active surveillance, I treat prostate cancer as well. I always say, look, try to get as much healthy sun exposure and in the winter take a vitamin D supplement for sure. Um, so that, that goes without saying. Um, fats, we didn't really talk much about fats. I think that uh, healthy fats are also in important they i'm not a, i'm not a believer that omega-6 is harmful uh, and and people say omega-6 is pro-inflammatory omega-3 is anti-inflammatory it's not as simple as that omega-6 does it does go it does get metabolized into inflammatory um uh prostaglandins and things in, in the inflammatory pathway that doesn't mean that they're harmful in fact there's it's the balance between omega-3 and omega-6 is good, and, but it's usually because we don't have enough omega-3. So I wouldn't reduce omega-6 fats, but I would increase omega-3 fats, you know, fish and stuff like that. Anyway, that, that's the other, other thing. In terms of supplements, again, um, for research, they're vital and it gives us the information. And of course, as a trials unit, we are going to use supplements uh, where we are and we're going to continue to use them to get the information out there. After we've got that information, then it's up to the individual. Clearly, the number one advice would be to you know, start the day with lots of fruit, nuts, slow-release carbohydrates. You have to go to the free-from section of avocado and make sure you've got, say, sugar plus without sugar, not sugar plus, I would say rice without sugar in it. There's lots of things you can do, but you have to really look for that. Um, if you feel you want to, you know, you're not able to get the amount of polyphenols in then a supplement is if it's well made that's the other thing because not all are it's well made will give you extra reassurance but that's not instead of a healthy diet you know to be honest if i could cook i would follow your book i can't cook so it doesn't matter how well you describe it in your pages it doesn't come out tasting like what you can produce that's for sure if i'm traveling or if i you know if i've had some busy days i will take some extra supplements but I wouldn't rely on them. So it's more, that's it, what it says, it's a supplement to diet, yeah. it's, it's not instead of. But some people like taking them, and we know cancer patients, for example, up to 60, 70% do take them. So the other object uh, with research is to say, well, if you're going to take them, maybe the research will tell you which ones to take and which not to take and which to avoid. Particularly, I think I'm getting the message over that people are taking vitamin A and vitamin E supplements, which actually could be doing harm. So stop them taking the ones which are harmful. If you're going to take vitamin D, what dose you should take? And it's clear you should take quite a high dose initially. Mm -hmm. um, you know, things like uh, fish oil supplements, which are very popular. Um, two trials came out showing that actually they might increase the risk of prostate cancer a bit. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, um, I heard that. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, you know, which is odd because you know we are tend to be deficient in vitamin in omega three, so they should in theory help, but the practice was it didn't. Mm. And when you look, and I've spoken to the chief investigators of both studies. And I said, well, you know, did you, were you, did you know that vitamin E is added as an antioxidant to fish oils? So, uh, and in this, one of the studies, the SELECT study, um, vitamin E, it was compared against, it was, it was a trial of vitamin E against placebo. And then it sub-looked at people who also took fish oils. So I said, well, all you're doing is enhancing the level of vitamin E. And he totally agreed. That never came out in the literature. So all the press just said, fish oil supplements are bad, but they didn't look into, well, this actually could be because of the antioxidant vitamin E they're adding to it. So little things like that, you need to know what you're dealing with. Yeah. Um, so if my advice, for example, if someone wants to take an omega-3 oil, is take, you know, A, try to get the natural oils. If you can't, make sure you get something without added vitamin E in it. Um, so, uh, yeah, so there's, there's a lot more knowledge we, we, we need. Um, and you know that's what we're trying to achieve with, with our studies. Yeah, absolutely. I, I I'm glad you mentioned that because I think unless if you're just looking at the headlines, then that's what you're going to come away with. That you know omega three equals bad for cancer, or in this case specifically prostate cancer. But I think um, and to your point earlier throughout this podcast, we've been talking about the impact of high dose supplementation of vitamin A, vitamin E. Um, and how that can have a negative impact. Can we just talk briefly actually about how that is? Um, is it the fact that vitamin E is hijacked by precancerous or cancerous lesions to essentially accelerate their growth? Um, well, yeah, and I'm, I'm, I, I, one of my things I get very upset about is when people say the word antioxidants or supplements and thinking it's one thing. Mm. Um, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of different types of ways you can manipulate food yeah. um, and what they um, it's particularly the term antioxidant um, there are foods which are direct antioxidants in other words they're able to mop up a free radical by providing an electron or removing an electron from a free radical which neutralizes it um, and these are your uh, vitamin A and vitamin E and acetyl cysteines and things like that. And the problem with those, if you have a, if you have, uh, if you take them and you you you're not deficient, it's different if you happen to be deficient in those N, N vitamins because of course, let's not ignore that blindness from vitamin A deficiency is still very common across the world. So if you're in the centre of Africa, you do well with a vitamin E A supplement. Um, but for the rest of us with normal levels of these, when you're taking them, you, you do a thing called antioxidant stress. You reduce too many free radicals, which you need for normal functioning of the cell. Um, how that increases the risk of cancer is I'm less certain of. All we know is that studies which have given people vitamin A and vitamin E supplements have resulted in a slightly higher risk of the cancers. So you may know more about that than me, but it, it isn't a good state to be in to have too much antioxidants. As opposed to whole foods or turmeric, say, for example, or broccoli or tea, they work by enhancing the sensitivity of the antioxidant enzymes. So encouraging the antioxidant enzymes to increase when there's oxidative stress. Um, 
So they improve the efficiency or antioxidant capacity. And as I said before, uh, when that uh, antioxidant risk goes, or that those free radicals go, you want actually the antioxidant enzyme to drop quite rapidly as well. Uh, and vitamin A and E block that drop. So, so they then deplete the free radicals in the cell, which can be harmful. Uh, the classic example is during exercise. When you exercise, uh, if you're not accustomed to it, you get a lot of free radicals formed because free radicals are produced naturally in the oxidative phosphorylation process. So they naturally are produced in cells. Over time with training, our antioxidant enzymes go up and it deals with that thing. And that's part of the importance of training, particularly in older people where the adaptive antioxidant enzyme pathway is, is reduced. Uh, but if you take vitamin E and vitamin A, you block the, because they naturally mop up the free radicals, you, you don't get that adaptive increase in antioxidant enzyme. So you're stopping the natural ability of your body to train with exercise. So, um, but people put them all in the same pathway. There's doctors in Sweden, I was in Sweden just before the lockdown. There was doctors saying, you know, you shouldn't go into a, a you, you, they were stopping people going to Pretamonje, getting a ginger shot. He was giving it a health warning. I was saying, come on, you really haven't, because he was saying ginger's an antioxidant. <laughs> yeah. so he saying, from his study on mice, he was correlating going to Pretamon and getting a ginger shot with an increased risk of cancer. I mean, that was a, that was a leap of far too far to yeah. have any common sense. And, that, and that's not borne out in the data looking at Whole Foods as well. I mean, that's why a lot of uh, Premier, Premier League football clubs are suggesting to their um, their athletes that they drink beetroot uh, juices afterwards. I'm not a big fan of juicing uh, per se, but, you know, it does have uh, an impact on vascular endothelial function post-exercise, um, which can actually be beneficial. But to your point about taking individual um, vitamins, like vitamin C, uh, yeah, I, I've, I've heard that uh, it blunts the adaptive response of skeletal muscle and you don't have that beneficial effect of the stress of exercise. So, you know, again, everything's coming back to balance and, and looking towards whole foods rather than individual supplements in high doses. Um, yeah, I mean, the vitamin C is a, a tricky one. We always call it an antioxidant. It actually, what, what vitamin C does, uh, well, we need, you know, sort of apart from stopping and getting scurvy, um, is it, it actually, um, it works with iron to encourage the uh, cellular pathways to recognize genetic breaks. Mm -hmm. So it actually works on DNA repair. So that's why um, there's not really been any studies to show that quite high levels of vitamin C are particularly harmful. Um, I wouldn't say that um, high levels of vitamin C are particularly beneficial, but unlike vitamin A and vitamin E, they've not actually been shown they're particularly harmful. So um, yeah, that's a different thing. But when you have vitamin C, uh, as you say, when you juice, you actually are changing the, the, the nature of, say, an orange. You're, you're pulling out all the pulp, which has got the, the citrus bioflavonoids, which are also anti-cancer and antiviral, and just concentrate on the juice. And you change it into a drink, which has then got a high glycemic index. So I, I, I would agree entirely with that. It's, as they say in California, you juice your vegetables and you eat your fruit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you came on to sports performance. Um, yeah, I mean, the nitrates um, in um, fruit have a, um, have a particularly beneficial effect. And I always remember a program the, the Someone from WHO announced that nitrates were really bad for you. 
Um, so we had the press turn up at the Primrose unit where I work. I said, but you know, nitrates are really good for you. And look, did you know that there's nitrates in broccoli? Yes. I think that's why they came because I was doing the pommy tea trial at the time. So they were trying to link <laughs> broccoli with cancer. And I said, yes, but night, but you, you need to sort of, with, I don't slag off journalists who are watching. Many are really highly educated, but sometimes they just see the bottom line. As you know, nitrates in food, plant food, uh, in the presence of polyphenol and vitamin C are actually metabolized into nitric oxide. Nitric oxide is a vasodilator and increases oxygenation of tissues. As you, you know all this, Ruby, but it's for the gentle. No, 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 for the, for so the they, listeners, they, of course, yeah. So, it, so when you have nitrate-rich foods, you get a vasodilatory effect of, uh, and um, an increased oxygenation effect of the arteries. So in other words, you increase oxygenation of your heart, your brain. So it's supposed to improve cognitive function. You, you get better muscle recovery. Uh, they've done, I mean, I, I don't know if you know, my other job is actually, I'm a professor of sports science now at University of Bedfordshire. So we do, you know, athletes are very keen on this because if you, you increase the amount of oxygen going into tissue, you get less um, uh, lactic acid formation, which is formed when there's not enough oxygen around, which can lead to muscle damage. So that's why plants with lots of nitrates in, as you just mentioned, beetroot, pomegranate, um, uh, spinach, those sort of things. They improve exercise performance, but also if even exercise aside, there's lots of diseases which are linked to low nitric oxide, such as dementia, heart disease. So that's another way they could be beneficial. On the other hand, in, if you have nitrates in meat, uh, which are either naturally occurring in meat or they've been added as a preservative, when you take them, when you, uh, when you eat them, if you don't have vitamin C or polyphenols at the same time, so say if you do what many people do in a, in a, in a barbecue, they, you know, they stand there with a, with a white bread um, hot dog, which is full of cheap meat, full of nitrates with white bread. They, they wash that down with a, with a, a fizzy sugary drink uh, and uh, some alcohol maybe. Um, those nitrates are converted to nitrous amines, which are direct carcinogens. Um, so, you know, it's a, you can't compare nitrates in meat to nitrates in plants. Saying that, you can mitigate some of the damage from nitrates in meat by marinating it in, in um, oils, healthy oils, herbs. And there's been data on that. You've probably heard me talk about the Maryland study where they marinated meat in, in rosemary. And you ate it with um, salads or fruit. And those nitrates actually are then converting to nitric oxide as well. So that's why not all meat is harmful. It's how you prepare the meat and what sort of quality of meat you have. So a good quality bit of meat eaten with lots and lots of vegetables and herbs and spices, you will get the benefit then of those nitrates, as well as the protein and the vitamin B12 and things. So, um, yeah, so it's, it's an interesting subject, uh, nitrates, and I'm, I'm very keen on it. Yeah, and I can tell. Yeah, and I can I can see the future of uh, perhaps uh, a, a version of, well, I will name it Lucasaid, uh, actually being you know something that will enhance sports performance rather than just a sugary, sugary drink. <laughs> uh, I think I think you're exactly right. I think um, well, one of the, because the study is called the Pommy Sports Study. We're about to start. Mm. Um, we we it's. It's, I don't particularly like the name sport because we want exercise to be for everyone, even if you, yeah. you can only walk a few yards. 
um, to someone like yourself, you probably go on park runs and beat 20 minutes every Saturday, I would imagine. <laughs> um, but, um, but sport is for everyone. You know, it, it doesn't have to be that you're an elite athlete. Sport could be going for a brisk walk. Um, but if you can enhance performance at every level, and certainly nitrate-rich food is definitely a, a route forward, um, and there's, there is research out there, but we're trying to quantify that a bit, you know, maybe combining celery with beetroot, um, you know, adding tea, turmeric, pomegranate with beetroot to see if the interplay between, um, you know, the, the nitrate-rich food and the polyphenol-rich food will legally improve your ability to exercise and make exercise more comfortable because it will be protecting your joints and improving muscle recovery. Absolutely. And on that subject, actually, of recovery, um, perhaps we should talk about post-cancer and how we can actually uh, use lifestyle and nutrition to reduce recurrence and if there's uh, good evidence for that too. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's lots of data um, from cohort studies mainly to show that if you, you know, exercise three hours a week, you have a reduced risk of relapse. If you have polyphenol-rich foods, there was a study from Shanghai, another one from California, that if you eat uh, even phytoestrogenic foods, you know, foods like soya, chickpeas, um, they, uh, they act a bit like one of the drugs tamoxifen. They, they dampen down your estrogen receptors. They also got lots of other polyphenols. They are linked with a reduced risk of relapse five, six years down the line. Um, so uh, same with vitamin D. We know if you're vitamin D deficient, you have an increased risk of cancer relapse. So there's a lot you can do once you've finished all your cancer treatments to improve your outcomes. Uh, but again, it's getting the message out there. I mean, breast cancer lady has been told for years to avoid soya and chickpeas yeah. um, based on no, well, there was evidence. They were just given the wrong advice because uh, there is evidence that those foods help you where you would be, um, a little bit concerned if you then got a phytoestrogen rich food such as saw palmetto or soy and put that in a supplement i would definitely not advise that because then you can override the um the block on the eastern receptor and you cannot start stimulating it but within whole foods uh they are perfectly safe and very healthy and should be encouraged yeah i, I yeah I, I agree with that and i think you know just the 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 word um uh, phytoestrogenic i think is quite scary for a lot of people and that's why i constantly get messages whenever i use tempeh or you know some sort of legume in my food that's known to have isoflavones etc um you know isn't this bad for you isn't this bad for uh cancer etc so i'm glad you clarified that because I, I get asked that, about that a lot no the the uh, i mean it's strange strange because if you look at the cell line data um there's no it's actually they they, they have anti-cancer effect if you look at the animal data they have anti-cancer effect and then the human data the two pretty massive study have all shown a protective effect yet people are still being told to avoid these foods <laughs> And I think it's because there was a few data where they, they give, did give people high-dose supplements and they saw uh, a, hyper, a, a hyper-proliferation effect in some uh, pre-malignant cells. And, and that got all the, all the publicity. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Robert, we've, we've chatted for so long now and I, I'm conscious of your time and also the fact that I've got to go to work in a second. But uh, just to summarize everything, so we've talked about you know um, how to prevent cancer, uh, what to do during cancer and, and the different sort of nutritional uh, things that we can and, and lifestyle uh, 
uh, practices we can do to uh, prevent relapse and potentially perhaps at some point in the future that will be borne out in some research, uh, improve outcomes and post-cancer as well. Um, where do you see the uh, the future of cancer treatment going? Uh, there's some really exciting stuff with uh, immuno within immuno-oncology. If we could marry that with metabolic oncology and perhaps some other fields that I haven't even thought of with the existing interventions that we have today, what does the ideal sort of uh, cancer patient journey look like, do you think? Cancer patients are individual people. That's, and the issue is we can't dictate to people how they want to choose to live their life. And many people don't want to change their lifestyle. But if, if it was a utopian society and we could say, this is what you want, I, you know, I, I would want to see nutritionists and exercise professionals being in the clinics next to the oncologists and the chemotherapy suite. So you would come in, you would have a, you know, a series of education um, pathways, internet, books, face-to-face uh, uh, -face consultation to try and get the message over that there's a lot can be done. So you'd go into a prehab program, you change your diet, and then the, the treatments are given side by side with those and and all the way through the pathway and then coming out the other side. Um, you know, we, we, for example, refer every patient to the 12 week nutritional uh, exercise program. So getting that more involved and using what's out there. So you don't have to own the patient that everything has to be given in the oncology unit because there's enormous sources out there. Um, because you could, the outcomes would be significantly improved. And this is, you know, we're not going to cure cancer by having a, a good meal or exercising, but the odds of responding, the odds of feeling better, and the odds of reducing that relapse are significantly go, go up. Um, that said, you know, we don't want to make people feel guilty if they have relapsed or they haven't tried hard enough, but it's all about reducing the odds. And, and, and I don't think we're taking that seriously enough yet. Um, there are some countries where I travel around the world, Lithuania of all countries seem to be embracing lifestyle medicine, maybe wow. former Eastern European, they're able to coordinate a bit better. With more, and they, you know, they, when you go to the GP with say high blood pressure, um, high cholesterol, bit of arthritis, they will put them into a lifestyle program before giving drugs. Um, so, and, and after cancer, you do have a higher risk of high blood pressure, high cholesterol and things. So, you know, I'd love to be able to sort of say, no, before you get started on a statin or before you have an antihypertensive, just try this nutritional and, and, and program first. I think we'd save so much toxicity. We'd save enormous money for the NHS, which we can spend on other things. Um, but, you know, people are people and they have choices. So yeah. it's a case of persuading, not forcing yeah exactly i totally agree and I, I would love to design some sort of trial or study where you know we we could uh give food not just the raw food but perhaps cooked food if people prefer that over a time period during their treatment and just measure outcomes and just see if there is an argument for uh not only a qualitative element so the experience of the patient but also the outcomes and the cost effectiveness as well because to your point if there are simple hacks to improve uh, the patient journey and the cost of it, then we can redistribute resources to an already underfunded healthcare service. So, I would I would totally welcome that. Yeah, good. Yeah, I would, that that would be ideal. 
<laughs> well, I'll, I'll leave you to that, uh, <laughs> to do that, as well as your other, your many other hats. Um, there, there are loads of questions that we had in social media. I don't think we've got time to go through them all because they're so the random. You know, talking about dairy and alcohol and cancer and hypnotherapy and all this kind of stuff. We might have to do this again, so I might have to drag you away again another time if you're willing uh, at some other point. I don't know how. I, I love uh, integrating with the public because. You get, as you say in, in my talks, you get asked to all sorts of cannabis, hypnotism, acupuncture. So even though my main theme is diet and, and exercise, you know, you do you do pick up knowledge along the way, and it's 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 all fascinating stuff. Yeah, great, great. So uh, I, I might I might pepper you with questions uh, another time from from uh, the the, the backlog of questions. I'm sure we're going to get after this as well. Um, Prof, thank you so much. I'd like to come to your kitchen. You can make me some food. I feel like I feel I've missed out. <laughs> Apparently, you cook for people, don't you? Yeah, no, I do. I cook. I, so basically, I cook for for you uh, based on your dietary preferences and dietary requirements, if if you have some. And we just have a lovely chat in the studio here, which is uh, yeah, which is empty at the moment. So unfortunately, uh, we'll have to we'll wait till next time. Yeah, well, I hope so. I hope so. Yeah, definitely. But podcasts or not, you're welcome here anytime. Lovely. If you are still here, thank you so much for reaching the end of the podcast. I know it was a long one, but I hope you have learned a lot more about this complicated topic. Uh, you understand a lot more about the impact of polyphenols and sugar in particular, and you are now equipped with a suite of tools by which to spread the message, but also help yourself or loved ones if they do find themselves in this unfortunate position, which a lot of us will, will unfortunately experience with the increasing rates of cancer and other degenerative diseases as well. Please do check out the podcast page. The links to a lot of the uh, articles and papers that we talk about are there and uh, do uh, sign up for the uh, subscribe I should say to the newsletter thedoctorskitchen.com we give weekly recipes plus lots of healthy tips and lifestyle hacks to help you keep on your healthcare goals that's me for now take care and I'll see you next week Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 